You can turn in your Bible to the book of Revelation. We come to a, a, a short doxology in this a book tonight, and uh, it fits well with our Lord's Supper uh, tonight, so we'll just continue in this book. I'll read for us uh, verses 1 through 8 of this chapter tonight. Revelation chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from the one who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. The book of Revelation is, is filled with uh, many doxologies like the one that we've read here. This is the first one in the book. And, and I think in part it's filled with doxologies because it's filled with visions of God's glory. And the only proper response when you get a glimpse of God's glory is to give him praise for his glory. That is the rightful response to the revelation of God's glory, to praise him. And that's really what Revelation is getting us to do, to praise God, to see him for who he is and what he has done and to give him the glory that is due to his name. That is our goal. That is the goal of human existence, is to praise God. Or as the Westminster Shorter Catechism tells us, what is our chief end? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Our whole being, our whole existence is for God's glory. And God is worthy of this praise that he demands of us. Because central to the praise of God is the salvation, this great salvation that he has worked for us in Christ. So particularly as we gather this evening to remember the work of Christ in the Lord's Supper, Revelation offers specific reminders and reasons of why we should ascribe glory 
and power to Jesus Christ. And so as we look at this text this evening, there are three reasons for giving glory to the Son that this text gives us. And so we we pick up at the end of verse uh, 5 there. That's our doxology. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So what is the first reason for giving glory to the Son? Give glory to the Son because of his undeserved love. John writes to the churches here, the seven churches, to him who loves us. And he puts this in the present tense, emphasizing its continuation even to this day. It's not as if Christ merely loved us in times past. He's saying, church, Jesus' love for you continues. And remember, this is a church that is increasingly feeling the the persecution of the culture. That to be a Christian meant to be more marginalized and people were losing uh, privileges and, and maybe even their jobs and some we know their very lives for Jesus' namesake. And John reminds this church, Jesus loves you, church, to him who loves us, not just in times past, but but into the present now, even in your persecution, even in your difficult circumstances, church, Jesus' love is still abiding with you. To him who loves us. That's an amazing statement, that Christ would love us, especially when you come to understand who the us is. And, and just how unlovable that us is. This love is for the church, but, but this church of Jesus Christ is made up of, of individuals from humanity. And to be human is to share a few things. First, if you're a human, you're, you, you are made in God's image. This is what God does from the very beginning in the garden. He said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and everything that creeps uh, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So here is God. He creates this beautiful world and the capstone of his creation is mankind. Only in humanity does God put his image These are God's special representatives on on the earth. They are given dominion. They are to rule this earth. They are to take dominion. They are to walk with their God. They were to have perfect uh, harmony and fellowship with one another and with their God. But that doesn't continue that way. That... Uh, through the deception of Satan, the sin enters the world. They took Satan's words that, you know, you'll be like God. God God's holding back from you. Uh, don't be content in your place that God's given you. You can have more. You can be like God. And they took from the fruit in blatant, open rebellion against God. 
discontent with what he had given them, and sin entered the world. This is a, this is a uh, harsh uh, rebellion, a defiance in humanity. So we don't merely inherit the image of God from Adam, we inherit his sinful nature and the guilt of his sinful nature. Adam's descendants don't take long to clearly show their sinful hearts. That one of Adam's very own son murders one of his other sons. Pretty soon uh, we see uh, polygamy and and the, the perversion of marriage. As we go through Genesis, and we did this not long ago, it doesn't take long until Genesis chapter 6 when it tells us that every thought of mankind was, was intended to do evil. So here is this loving creator who desired to have close fellowship with mankind, to have them as his rulers on earth, and mankind blatantly rejects God's rule and went after their own way. They defied the creator who gave them their very breath. Can you imagine a, a, an orphan on the street and, and, and someone has compassion and just picks him or her up and brings them home, raises them? If, if they were left in the street, they would have died. And that, that child grows up and then rejects those adopted parents, blatantly defies their ways, massacres their, their name. What, what ingratitude, what... What nauseating behavior. And our sin is that way before God. So if you're here tonight, you have to face your sin. You have to face the fact that you are a sinner who has rebelled against God. Yet John says, give glory to the one who loves us. In all of mankind's rebellion and sin, God did not merely reject us, but He lavishes His kindness on us, amazingly. In in all our rebellion, God set His love on mankind. How It's amazing. We can't explain why would God love humanity. But He did. He could have completely destroyed Adam and Eve immediately. He didn't have to save Noah in the flood. Noah was just as much a sinner as the rest. He did not completely destroy the earth. And we'll see that he he has further actions taken. But as we talk about Christ's death and and, and all that brings, that's all rooted in God's love for us. That doesn't happen unless God has this favorable disposition for us. If God did not love us, Christ would not have come and freed us from our sin and made us a kingdom priest to God. So this is the root of all redemptive action is God's love. That as we know, love can make you do many sacrificial acts. And God's love 
for humanity uh, made him uh, extend in sacrificial acts. So give glory to the Son because of his undeserved love. Secondly, give glory to the Son because of his freedom-bringing death. All our points are so interconnected tonight. You can't talk about God's love without talking about Christ's death. Because God's love is not merely in words. It's in great sacrificial action. To him who loved us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. If you're using the New King James, it has washed. This is a textual variant. In one sense, they're saying the same thing. But the best manuscripts have loosed, as we'll see. So that's what we're going with. Freedom bringing death. He loosed us from our sins. We were slaves to our sins. As this is Paul's exposits this in Romans chapter, chapter 6. He, he makes the point. You are slaves of the one whom you obey. And in your flesh, in your natural state, you couldn't help but sin. In fact, if you tried to stop sinning, you couldn't do it. If you made a resolution, I'm just going to do better this year. I'm not going to... And you found yourself still sinning. Why? It was your slave master. Why? Because you inherited this sinful nature from Adam. We see this very quickly in, in, in children, that you don't have to teach your children folly. You have to teach your children righteousness, because that doesn't come natural to them. What comes natural is folly. No one teaches a toddler how to do a temper tantrum. He didn't learn that from anyone. That young, young children begin sinning things they've never seen before. Where did that come from? It comes from their sinful human nature. That we all are born enslaved to. And for those who have been converted, and you can remember the time before your conversion, you may, you may tangibly remember your bondage to sin. You, you may tangibly remember whether one type of sin or just all, all manner of sin. I was enslaved to that. I couldn't help it. I wanted to stop, but I couldn't. Because honestly, I love that. You're enslaved. Think of the slave in the bottom of, of the slave ship. And his job, is, as he's chained to the bottom of the boat, is he, he is to row the boat. And if he stops rowing the boat, He's got his taskmaster over him that's going to give him severe punishment, but he knows if he keeps rowing, he's rowing to his death because no one's saving him, no one's delivering him out of here, no one's giving him food. When you die, they just throw you in the ocean and they, they bring in another slave and they keep going. 
So you're, you're bound to this ship, you're bound to your seat, you're headed towards death, your situation is hopeless. That is a picture of our sin. That even if we could look at ourselves in our bondage and, and want to be free, there was no hope in ourselves. But praise God for him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. There is a freedom that comes to us in Christ. Because just in the garden, as God pronounces judgment, that, that death, death is coming, it is upon you, you're, you're cast out of the garden, your, your life now is going to be pain, but in the midst of judgment, God says, but, but the seed of the woman will come and will crush the head of the serpent. That, that this, this battle with sin, I'm going to defeat one day with a descendant from you, Eve. And he's going to deal with sin and all of this uh, curse. And remember, this promise and all of the action that follows is rooted in God's love. And so God has a plan of redemption, and that's what He does. He eventually uh, it culminates in Jesus Christ coming and living a perfect life, and Jesus Christ offering Himself in our place to die for our sins, to pay the penalty for our sins on the cross. We're told we, we have freedom purchased, how? By His blood. By means of his blood, meaning by means of his sacrificial death, because when his blood is poured out, he dies. On the cross, Jesus is our substitute. Dying the horrific death that you and I deserve for our blatant rebellion against God. Jesus Christ is, is uh, the propitiation for our sin. He satisfies God's wrath for us. That our sin is so heinous that it deserves uh, eternal wrath from God. And Jesus Christ bears that and is able to satisfy that for his people. So that the ransom price for our sin was paid. And in Christ we now are free from sin's guilt and we are free from sin's power. It no longer reigns in our life. These are two precious promises in the gospel. We're freed from sin's guilt or sin's penalty. Imagine being that slave in that ship and you're in that hopeless row, slogging it out in pain every day, knowing death is coming. And some shipmaster shows up to your ship and says, Stop! I've purchased the freedom of all these slaves we're turning around, we're going to shore, we're letting them free to live. What, 
what glory, what freedom, what, what happiness you would have that I thought I was going to die at sea in this misery. And here comes this captain and he has ransomed me. He has purchased my freedom that now I can live. And that is us in our hopeless sin, in our misery, in our enslavement. Jesus Christ comes to die, and by means of his sacrifice, he frees us from our sins. And, and all, he says, all those who, who look to him, sin is no longer your issue. He says, you are free You are forgiven. Your guilt is gone. All those accusations against you which are true, which is is building up condemnation for future judgment, Jesus Christ declares you not guilty and free from all of that because of His blood. And He also frees you from sin's power. This is Paul's argument also in Romans 6. You you are free now to live a righteous life. Those sins that enslaved you no longer enslaved you. That you have victory in Christ. And yes, we, we still struggle with sin, but its power has died. And whatever struggle with sin we have is is temporary because for all eternity we will not struggle with sin because it has been dealt with on the cross. So he loved us and he freed us from our sins by his blood. But thirdly, it doesn't just stop there. We should give praise to the Son because of his great salvific benefits. We are freed from sin's penalty. We are freed from sin's power. And we're told in verse 6, He made us a kingdom, priests to His God and Father. So it gets better. Now by now you know we we can't go through a sermon on, on Revelation without looking to the Old Testament. Where does this idea of becoming kingdom and priests come from? Exodus 19. Would you turn there with me? God calls the people out of slavery, He delivers them out of slavery in Egypt. He gives them his covenant in the wilderness. I'll pick up at verse 3 here. Then Moses went up to, to God. The Lord called him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. 
God says, I've delivered you out of slavery in Egypt. I've called you to myself. I've set you apart as my special possession. I've given you my covenant. You are my people. You are my treasured possession of all the people. And you will be to me a kingdom. And a kingdom of priests, meaning you are to represent me. You are set aside to worship me and to represent me in the world. I have freed you to do that. And as we come into the New Testament, this, this uh, picture here in Exodus is a type of, of the greater Exodus to come. That, that Jesus doesn't deliver us from uh, physical bondage, but he delivers us from spiritual bondage to our sin. I think this is why that word loose there is, is better. He freed us from our sin rather than washed us from our sin. This idea of, of exodus, this idea that, that we were captive to our sin. God frees us from that. He brings us out of that bondage. And he says, you are now a kingdom priest to my God, says Jesus. Meaning, you, you are my special representatives in, in the world. That in the church, the kingdom of God has come. This kingdom where, where, of God is God's full and final redemptive reigning on the earth where he gathers his people and he deals with sin. And God's kingdom is not fully here. There's a not yet aspect to God's kingdom, but there is an already. And the already is here in the church as God is loosing people. He's freeing people from their bondage to sin and he's gathering them together to worship him. And, and they are, they are part of the kingdom of God. They are priests to God, meaning they, they, they are set aside to serve and worship God. That we have become royal sons and daughters of God. So it's one thing for a king to, to forgive the peasant his penalty and make him free. But it is a totally another thing for that king to take that peasant and make him a part of his household and give him authority as part of his household. And that's what God does with us. We're the, the slave, the peasant, guilty, he frees us from that guilt, he forgives that guilt, and he adopts us into his family, and we are now sons in Christ, and we will reign forever with him. So, so tonight as we come to the Lord's Supper, be reminded of these great truths of your God and give Him glory and power for that. Rooted in God's love to the undeserving, Christ came, dealt with sin, freed us from its guilt and power, and made us a kingdom, priests to our God. Yes, indeed, to Him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we cannot in words fully comprehend your love 
and this great work of redemption in Christ. But by your grace, we who are partakers of this truth, Lord, we glory in our Lord Jesus Christ. We are thankful of his love for us. We're thankful for his life-giving, freedom-bringing death. And we're thankful for all of the salvation benefits that we are now a kingdom, priests, to God Most High, and we will reign forever with you. We will dwell in perfect harmony and love and joy and peace with you forever. Thank you for these precious truths. In Jesus' name, amen.